tonight. If you want to turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3, it is towards the end of the New Testament. So if you get to Revelation, you've gone a little bit too far. You want to back up a few books. Uh, we are finishing First uh, and Second Peter, and then uh, next week, uh, Frank will open the book of Jude uh, to you, which is very closely related to Second Peter. So, Second Peter chapter three. I'm going to read all 18 verses. Uh, please listen carefully, as this is God's word. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance." But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. The word of the Lord. Thank be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to the end of Second Peter. 
to learn about Christ and how he wants us to live. Lord, teach us by your Holy Spirit. Help us to make every effort to understand your truth and to live by what we know. These are words about trust and patience and growth and grace, and we need them now more than ever. So open our hearts to believe and obey them. And as always, give us the desire to learn from you this morning and help us to consider what it means to embrace waiting as it is presented in your word. And so we pray, speak through the words of the Apostle Peter this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. Dr. Ryan Reeves is a theology professor, and he wrote about a meeting and listening to an English professor. Uh, professors apparently like to talk to each other. And this uh, English professor was teaching a course on science fiction literature. And the topic was the nature of the apocalypse in science fiction. Wonderful topic. So many science fiction stories today and movies are about the end of the world. And so the professor turns his attention uh, to the way his students discussed this subject of the end of time. And mostly he noticed how their opinions were out of proportion to how they lived. Everything in this world was due to collapse into a singular catastrophic event. And yet they still used their time contemplating the mundane realities of college football, weekend parties, and sleeping for sport. So the professor decided to conduct an experiment. So one week, he asked the students to write out a list of what they believed would happen at the end of the world. He collected those lists, and then several weeks later, after the first list was forgotten, he asked them to write up a second list, this time a list of their life goals. And then he combined the two lists into something like a strange new form of Mad Libs. And what he came up with was really interesting. Remember, he's combining his students' life goals with how they thought the world would end. And so Sarah will watch her grandchildren graduate from high school shortly before a meteor the size of Texas destroys the earth. And Jeff will retire from his career in business, but only as science achieves artificial intelligence kicking off a Terminator-style war between man and machine. And Kyle will publish his fifth best-selling book before the planet's natural resources run out, killing all of his readers. And the professor's conclusion was, people like to play with their idea about the future, though it tends to make no difference in how they live. And those are sobering words. They're even more sobering when they're applied to those of us who actually believe in an end times judgment, who believe that the world as we know it is coming to an end, who believe in a cataclysmic day of the Lord will come at Christ's return, who believe there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And we can believe all these things about the end of days but if it makes no difference in how we live, 
then are we really all that different from Sarah, Jeff, and Kyle? So in our text for today, the Apostle Peter says, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And that sounds good. But what precedes the coming of the new heavens and the new earth? Look with me at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Judgment day. What do you think of when you hear the words, judgment day? Does your mind immediately go to the end of the world as we know it lyrics? Perhaps like me, you picture the Terminator movies. Some of our younger folk, it's most likely to be the Avengers Infinity War. And for some of our older folks, it might be the classic 1953 film uh, by H.G. Wells, The War of the Worlds. And as I wrote this week, if you have any questions about any of those things, you can just ask Frank Wong. All right. He knows all things about movies. Now, if you don't believe in the doctrine of Judgment Day, that someday a completely impartial judge will stand on the earth and everything will be put right and no one will get away with anything and everything will be fixed and everything sad will be made untrue, if you don't believe that, it just pushes you to the extremes. You either become cynical and just give up on the world uh, to such an extent that you become extremely self-centered, or you double down on the world in an effort to fix everything, probably leading you to become a desperate, burned-out activist. But a person who believes in the doctrine of Judgment Day works towards those ends without going to extremes. So on the one hand, it sharpens your sense of justice. So you work against injustice. On the other hand, it calms you down because it assures you in the end what is right must and will inevitably triumph. So before you get rid of your doctrine of judgment day, realize what it does to us, what it does to our mental framework and realize how arbitrary and self-serving it is to receive some of what Jesus says and then reject other parts. We tend to notice the parts we like and then notice the parts we don't like, and it's just really hard to be objective when you're picking and choosing, and there's not a lot of integrity in that. So let's look and see what this passage, 2 Peter 3, teaches us about the doctrine of Judgment Day. The Bible most commonly refers to what we call Judgment Day as the Day of the Lord. So the big question is, what difference does it make for how we live? And that's actually uh, the question the Apostle Peter asks us here in verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? So let's start with our reason for waiting. Our reason for waiting, verses 1 through 10. He says, this is now the second letter 
that I am writing you, beloved, and both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by uh, means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Apparently, for some people in the New Testament church, the fact that Jesus had not returned during the lifetime of the first generation of believers after his resurrection uh, was becoming something of a source of frustration for them. They saw it as a delay. And as this perceived delay stretched on, as that first generation began to die, they began to sound like they're waiting for a flight at the Delta Terminal in Atlanta. This is never going to happen. Maybe we got this wrong. Maybe Jesus isn't really coming back. Where's the so-called promise of his coming? And that's what they're saying. And that's what Peter is responding to here. And notice how, according to Peter... It is the word of God that should be shaping our expectations. Not, o not only is he telling us to remember the word of God, but that the word is reliable and therefore it should shape our expectations. Going back again to verse 1, he says, This is now the second letter that I am writing you, beloved, and both of them I am stirring up your seer mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Now, a few weeks ago, I said that this theme of reminding and remembering actually conveys the central reason that Peter is writing this letter. This is the purpose of Second Peter. It's about remembering what matters most. And in verse 2, you get to see what he wants them to remember, he says that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So the prediction of the holy prophets, clearly a reference to the Old Testament. The commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, a reference to what would become the New Testament. So this is where Peter wants us to fix our attention as we engage in theological controversy as we try to navigate the claims that are being made by false teachers, it's not a question of who said what. It's not about following the lead of your favorite celebrity pastor or defending your tribe. That's not what determines our convictions. 
Peter wants us to remember that the reliable word of God, preserved exclusively for us in the Old and New Testaments, is alone our rule of faith and life. And what he's doing is calling us into biblical realism about human nature. The reliable word of God, the scriptures, are actually quite realistic about the capacity, even for the people of God, to misunderstand one another, to get things wrong, to wound one another, even to go astray and to teach error. And in this case, he says, if you really knew the word, you would know to expect false teachers. He calls them scoffers skeptics about the central truths of the gospel. He says, this is just par for the course. And he's telling us, don't be so quickly uh, disappointed or disillusioned by such controversies. Don't think that this side of heaven, there will ever be a perfect church where everyone will always agree and everything will always be just fine and we'll always get along. This is not the biblical expectation. So after that word of reassurance... And calling the people to focus on the scriptures, Peter deals with the arguments of the false teachers. Notice what they're saying in verse 4. They say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So Jesus hasn't come back yet. Nothing has changed since the ancient fathers died. Indeed, since the dawn of time, life goes on as it always had. So much for his promised return. Nothing has changed, and as far as we can tell, nothing ever will. And that's what they're saying. And so Peter responds by pointing to creation and the flood. And what that means for both was, uh, that the means for both of those things, creation and the flood, was the word of God. We see that end of verse 5, beginning of verse 7. That is, by means of this same word, through which all things were created, God brought judgment to the ancient world. The world was deluged with water and perished. And the sovereign decree and word of God that made the world is the same sovereign decree and word that judged the world. The word rules the world. And that pattern of history of creation and judgment becomes a pattern for the future as well. Back to verse 7, he says, By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Remember, the accusation is that Jesus is not coming back. He's vacated his promise. He's betrayed his word. You can't trust it. Things are never going to change. There is no judgment day. And that's what they're saying. But if you really knew how powerful the word of God is, you would never dismiss the promise of Christ so easily. This is the word that made the world and flooded the world and preserves the world and will one day bring it to decisive judgment in the final inferno at the end of the age. The cosmos is kept by the word for fire until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. It tells us the word of God governs history. By the word, the world was made. By the word, it was flooded. By the word, it's being kept. And by the word, it will be judged. 
So when Jesus says, I'm coming back, don't be so quick to dismiss his promise. Don't be so casual about the scriptures. Don't shrug in indifference at the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. The reliable word of God ought to shape our expectations. But remember, it also governs the progress of history. All things work out according to the plan and decree and revealed will of our sovereign God. And Peter highlights a few things about God here that are revealed in his reliable word. First, he mentions God's perspective in verse 8. He says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. He's quoting the Old Testament, Psalm 90, verse 4, for a thousand years in your sight are as but yesterday when it passed. The reliable word of God teaches us that God does not look at time the way we do. He stands outside of time. He's not subject to time. He doesn't operate with our perception of time. And so we shouldn't demand that he act according to our timetable. And that's actually a helpful principle for all of us to remember. Not just when it comes to understanding the return of Jesus, but in all of God's dealings with us every day. Wouldn't it help cultivate patience to remember that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. He is working according to his perfect plan in his perfect timing with your teenager, in your marriage, with your career, in your studies. He is in charge. We are not. He does all things well. He has ordered all things by his holy decree and his sovereign word. And whatever he has promised, he will fulfill. But he will do it his way and in his time and not ours. There is a reason Jesus hasn't come back yet. Do you know what it is? He tells us here he hasn't come back yet because God doesn't want you to go to hell. Verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Peter is writing to you. He's writing to the church. He's writing to the elect, and not all of them are saved yet. Some of them have been misled by false teachers, and Peter is pleading with them, you haven't repented of your sin and turned to God for mercy. That's why he hasn't returned. He doesn't want you to perish. And that is what will happen today if Jesus were to come back right now and you're not converted. So God is being patient with you. Finally, the reliable word of God reveals the plan of God. We see verse 10. It says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. It's actually quoting Jesus here. We see uh, Jesus uh, says in Matthew chapter 24, You do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man 
His coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter is quoting Jesus. Paul quotes Jesus, 1 Thessalonians 5. For you yourselves are aware the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security. That's what the false prophets and the false teachers uh, are, telling, are saying in Peter's churches. Peace and security. Then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So Jesus is quoted by Peter. He's quoted by Paul. He's also quoted by the Apostle John. Revelation 3, uh, we, uh, the Apostle John hears the exalted Christ. He's warning the church in Sardis. And he says, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Peter, Paul, and John all say the same thing, all based on what Jesus has said. So we need to listen to Peter's warning. And we don't need to delay in coming to Christ. Part of this warning is for us not to say, I have lots of time left. Do not presume upon his patience. One day he is going to come back and he will no longer come as Lord and Savior. On that day he will come as Lord and Judge. So what do we do? What is our response to waiting? Starting at verse 11, our response to waiting. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells, he says, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Notice what he's saying here. Since everything's going to be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Now think about this. Why does God even talk to us about Judgment Day? Why doesn't he just make it a big surprise? Why not just surprise us? You know, he just shows up and says, guess what? I'm going to fix everything. I didn't tell you about it in the Bible. I wanted it to be a surprise. So why does he tell us about it? Is it to scare us? No. No. Every time it's brought up in the Bible, it's brought up to be used. It's brought up to change how we live. One example, and there's many, one example, 1 John 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Whoever hopes for his appearance purifies themselves. That's what we're supposed to do. Live lives of holiness and godliness. I was reading a 
devotional by John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. And uh, he's talking about, uh, uh, not Amazing Grace, he was actually writing about the Hallelujah Chorus. And um, he says the trouble with the Hallelujah Chorus is it has these great words. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. But the music is so beautiful. Most people are just thrilled by the music and they're not actually listening to the words. And we walk out of the concert just absolutely inspired without having given any thought to what it's actually saying. And the words just sort of completely wash off us. And he says most people are thrilled with the Hallelujah Chorus without actually getting the truth of the Hallelujah Chorus. The doctrine of Judgment Day is the same way in most people's minds. You believe in it, but you're not looking into it. You're not really getting it. And if you did, what would happen? If we really understood the doctrine of Judgment Day, how would it change us? Well, first, it gives you confidence and calmness. There should be a calmness about you. That means that no matter what kind of setback, no matter what kind of reversal you're experiencing, uh, you know it's temporary. And it doesn't just wipe you out. It can't. It's not able to. It doesn't mean you don't weep. It doesn't mean you don't feel pain. But this confidence in the sovereignty of God overwhelms that. And you have that kind of confidence. If you have this in front of you, you know that whatever it is that's in front of you, whatever it is that's a setback, whatever it is that's a reversal, is not the war. You can't lose the war against injustice. You can't lose. You're out to seek a new heavens and a new earth, and you're going to get there. And any reversal you experience today is just one battle. It's not the war. You can't lose the war. And you have to ask, do we really believe that? Do we live as if that's true? If so, then there's confidence and calmness. Jesus is coming back, and that future truth should govern our present reality. Second, it allows you to forgive. The doctrine of judgment is the only way to be a forgiving person. If you don't believe in the doctrine of uh, judgment day and you experience injustice, what's going to happen to you? So I was reading about this. There's a tremendous amount of stuff written, and, and you can listen to podcasts and such, um, about how many people are adopting a victim mentality. Anything negative happens in their life and they become a victim. And so if they're confronted with injustice, they just adopt a victim mentality. It's led to an incredible number of lawsuits. It's led to a lot of political gridlock, particularly at the local level. And uh, it's clear that there is a lot of people who just think they're a victim. Everybody feels like an oppressed minority, whether they are, are or not. Everybody thinks they're oppressed. Well, what does the Bible say about that? Well, first of all, the Bible says it's not imaginary. There are real injustices. But a Christian is somebody who says, I don't have the wisdom, I don't have the power, and I don't have the right to stand in judgment. I can't be the judge, and I don't need to be the judge. I don't know what these people deserve, but I know this. Nobody in the end gets away with anything. So I can give it to God. 
I can trust God despite this injustice. That's important. Because again, if you don't do that, what are your alternatives? If you experience injustice, you can either decide, I don't care, and harden yourself, or you can put yourself in the role of the judge. And in many cases, what we do is spend our time mentally executing judgment on people who are like the person who hurt us. A man hurt us, so we're against men. A woman hurt us, so we're against women. Uh, black, white, whatever. You spend all your time mentally executing people because you're the judge. And it reveals an immense level of bitterness. So what's the alternative to becoming bitter because of injustice or not caring about injustice? The alternative is say, Lord, I want you to be the judge. If you, we really believe the doctrine of judgment day, it will not only give you a confidence and a calmness, but it will free you up to be more forgiving because you don't have to execute judgment. So we wait, confident, calm, forgiving. With that said, we have to ask, what is the goal of waiting? Look at verses 17 and 18. What is the goal of waiting? It says, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So many years ago, it was a dark and stormy night. Stories are supposed to start like that. And uh, Simon Peter is talking to the person that he loves the most. And that person told him, I'm going to be tortured and crucified. And in the moment that I need you most, you're going to chicken out and deny me. And Simon Peter says, not me. Never, Lord. And Jesus replied, of course, you know this is Jesus. And he says, Simon, you don't get it. I've been trying to teach you how the human heart works, and you don't realize how dangerous a thing it is, how your heart will deceive you and betray you. You will deny me, and you will fall. And then he says, and that's all a summary, but then he says, Luke 22, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. What's so interesting here is at the very end of this letter by Simon Peter at the end of 2 Peter 3, the same word shows up that Jesus used back on that dark and stormy night. He says in verse 17, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. That's the way this translation translates. It's the same Greek word that Jesus used when he said, strengthen your brothers. The word translated stability here. And what Peter is saying is, I don't want you to fall from strength. I want you to remain strong. I don't want you to lose your stability. I want you to be stable. It's the same word at the end of 2 Peter that Jesus uses with Peter in Luke 22 in the account of that dark and stormy night. In other words, Jesus is saying, Peter, you are going to be an expert at falling. You're going to be an expert at tripping and stumbling. 
And years ago, when Jesus was saying that, Peter was somewhat arrogant. And he had no idea how easy it was to fall spiritually. But now he does. Now he does. And now Jesus says, I want you to use that expertise for all the people around you. And that's what Peter's doing in this whole book. And especially right here at the end. And that's what we need to understand when he says, I don't want you to fall from strength, but grow in grace. What a difference a little word makes. He doesn't say don't fall from strength and grow in grace. He says don't fall from strength, but grow in grace. You see what that means? It's the only way to avoid falling from strength is to grow in grace. Don't do this, but instead do that. And there are lots of ways you can put this, but Peter is saying the only way to not fall in the Christian life is to grow in the Christian life. There's a sense in which these three little words, grow and grace, are not only a summary of everything Peter has been trying to say, but they are a summary of everything the New Testament says a Christian should do. And remember, these are Peter's last words but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Peter was executed during the reign of Nero in A.D. 68. According to tradition, he was crucified upside down. And it happened not that long after he wrote these words. Peter's dying wish is to see Christians growing in grace. Now, for 25 years, this has been the theme verse of this church. And we chose it because it applies to every single one of us. This is the desire that we have for you, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for 60 years, 60 months, 60 days, or even if you're not a believer yet. Whatever your age and stage in the Christian life, we want you to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you do that, then Judgment Day should not frighten you. Judgment Day should not frighten you. There's this amazing hymn I stumbled across. Uh, thanks to Tom, we're going to sing it uh, here at the end. Uh, I think it's partially, uh, to some degree, based on 2 Peter 3. Our text says, I'm going to read this again, starting in verse 10, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up. Verse 12, Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. A blazing fire. The elements will melt in the heat. And there's this great hymn. It was written by Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. He's one of the great reformers. There's a great line in it. He wrote it almost 300 years ago. And it says, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds... In these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. That's the way it comes out. He wrote it in German, so it doesn't really rhyme. But it's beautiful. 
Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress, midst flaming worlds in these arrayed. What is he saying? Are Christians supposed to be people who just barely get through all that? Will everything be going to pieces around us and we'll be shielding our eyes against the horror of it all? It's not what he says. Midst flaming worlds in these arrayed with joy will I lift up my head. It will be an awakening to something better. A Christian is someone who looks at Jesus and knows when that judgment day comes, he can look to Jesus and say, because you are judged, I won't be. Because you are judged for me and I believe in you, I can pass. I can stand on that judgment day because you stood under my judgment. And if you say that today and you mean it and it comes from the heart, then you have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. lots of time left. I should have kept going. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you and we confess our failure to remember the promise of your return. Sometimes we live as people who think you're not coming back. Grant that we may actually live as people who not only remember your grace, but who want to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and work in each of our hearts as we learn from the Apostle Peter to embrace our status as those who are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So by the power of the Holy Spirit, draw us ever closer to the one who has taken our judgment upon himself, who has forgiven our sin at the cross, and who will return to deliver us from the wrath to come. Your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.